We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Hey, uh, quick, a couple announcements uh, before we jump in. First, uh, we are going to be starting in just two weeks. So next week, we have our Declare and Display, Declare and Display series. And then the week after that, we're starting 2 Corinthians. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians basically all of the fall. And so uh, we had a very sweet and generous couple at our church uh, purchased about 200 of these uh, 2 Corinthian ESV journaling uh, Bibles. And so if you are a covenant member today, we have a few hundred of them stacked out on, the, the, on your way out. So it's just got the text on one side and blank notes for journals on the other. You can keep this, use this throughout the Second Corinthians series. We'll likely have enough for everyone. We wanted to make sure our covenant members got one first. So if, you could, if you're not a covenant member, if you could hold off for just you know, 15, 20 minutes out there and then grab one on your way out, that'd be great. And then second of all, we have had a ton of visitors this summer, which is awesome as we um, kind of move into the fall. Typically, everyone starts to come back from vacation, and, and we want to encourage you. We have a membership weekend coming up, and so if you're a visitor and you think this might be where the Lord is having you land, uh, would you just sign up for that membership weekend, and there you can ask questions. You can get to know our pastors. You can hear what we believe. You can hear how we operate, why we do the things that we do, so forth. So those are my only announcements, and let's jump in this morning. So I get the joy and the honor of closing out our series on the Psalms and the Proverbs. I've been excited for this series for a while for a number of reasons, one of which is, as you know, we believe in expository preaching here, which means that we typically just start a book and go verse by verse through that book like we're going to do with 2 Corinthians. It's very rare that we just get to pick a verse, pick a chapter that we like to preach, and preach it. And that's what we got to do for this particular uh, series. We just asked, what are the Psalms and the Proverbs that you've always wanted to preach? And let's just preach them for seven weeks over the summer. And when our elders decided to do this particular series, I was sitting in a coffee shop, as every one of my stories begins, <laughs> and uh, sitting in a coffee shop, and the text came through that said, hey, I think we should go ahead and pull the trigger on doing the Psalms and Proverbs series. What do you guys think? I picked up my phone immediately and said, I think this is a good idea. By the way, I call Psalm 73. <laughs> to which Sam Parkinson responded, no, with like 10 O's. I was about to call dibs on that one. <laughs> to which I wish I could report to you that I had a very godly response of, oh, no worries, Sam. I'll lay aside my preferences so that you can fulfill your pastoral delight. But instead, I had the remarkably mature response of, ha ha, sucker. But all jokes aside, I love this psalm. Psalm 73 just stirs my soul. I, I know many of you have something like this. You know, those, those portions of scripture that your soul just flies to for refuge. Th those passages that have a way of just, just instilling peace into the deepest parts of your bones. That's Psalm 73 for me. I go here often. This is a well I drink from time and time again. Let me just read a couple of verses out of Psalm 73 for you, just that have mended my broken spirit over and over and over. And before we pray, just so that you can revel in the beauty of Psalm 73, just look at how 
absolutely fantastic. Verse 25 is, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh my word, how much beauty in these sentences. My wife and I, some of you might think this is silly, but my wife and I have this little tradition. Uh, we have a little green hardback journal, and we call it the Book of Beautiful Sentences. And the aim of the Book of Beautiful Sentences is when we come across, my wife and I are both readers, when we're reading poetry or fiction or some kind of history or theology or even the scriptures, we will write down sentences that we find that are extraordinarily beautiful, uh, just as a way to stir our own affections for Jesus and as a, a parenting tool. One day, if the Lord allows us children, we want to give the book of beautiful sentences to our kids. So we, we got this idea from Anne Frank and her dad. They did the same thing. They wrote down books of, uh, they had this little book of beautiful sentences. And if you open our little green book of beautiful sentences, sentence number one reads, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. God, as we start this sermon, I just, from the outset, just feel the reality of being too small to preach the grand beauty in this passage. So Spirit, I'm, I'm asking you to, to deliver a better sermon than I have written. Would you convince us today, everyone in the room, would you convince us that there is no greater delight in the world than you, that you are our portion, that you've given us thousands of gifts, but we want most especially the giver. God, we need you this morning. We want to hear from your word. May you calm our hearts May you still distractions. May you give us supernatural focus so we can fix our eyes on your goodness and glory. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would delight in what we do and that you would be made much of this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we jump into Psalm 73, for you systematic thinkers and you note takers, let me give you a little bit of a road map uh, that, that, that has been helpful for me and even just navigating where we're going with this uh, few verses. So, so here we go. Verse I see, I see this, this chapter being outlined in four different parts. I even alliterated three of them like a good Baptist. The first one, I just couldn't get it done, so give me grace. I'm like 75% Baptist according to my outline. So section one, verses one through three, is the introduction and the thesis of the text. That's one through three. Verses four through 15, I've entitled, The Delight of the Wicked. Verses 16 through 22, I've called the destruction of the wicked. And then finally, verses 32 through 38 is the devotion of Asaph. 1 through 3, the introduction and thesis. 4 through 15, the delight of the wicked. 16 through 22, the destruction of the wicked. 32 through 38, the devotion of Asaph. So let's just jump into our first section and walk through each until we reach the beauty that is the end of the chapter. We learn from the title that this is a psalm of Asaph. And he begins this important psalm with a major point. Let's just, let's just read this. Truly God is good to Israel. 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I'm just going to work through the whole chapter and we'll go back to our first section since we didn't have a scripture reader today. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. So look at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. So this seems innocent enough, right? The psalm begins and ends with the idea that God is good. However, there is something interesting that happens in the transition from verse 1 to verse 2. And I think it's instructive for us particularly as Emmaus. In verse 1, Asaph is recounting the goodness of God. Truly God is good to Israel. Something that all Israelites would have known, right? He is good. For he created them. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He, he, he brought them through the wilderness. He brought them across the Jordan. He, he, he aided their getting into the promised land. This is a God who has proven to be faithful to his covenant over and over and over. Though his people have only shown the propensity to violate the covenant. Asaph is correct in asserting, truly God is good to Israel. But look at the next verse. Look at these next four words. But as for me. But as for me. Asaph is juxtaposing here. Right? He puts himself outside of those who are counted amongst the number that God is being good towards. Right? He puts himself outside. He says he is counted not among those who are pure in heart. Not among those who is receiving the goodness of God. 
He doubts the goodness of God towards him, and the doubt of the goodness of God towards the people of God is the primary theme of this passage. Right? There is no better song to sing this morning than, oh, how long? Right? How long will the wicked exalt? How long will the lust of, innocent, or of, the lust of wicked men be indulged? How long? How long will you give them goodness and not me? Because what, what Asaph is showing here is, is Asaph knows that God is good, but he doesn't feel it. Right? Verses 4 through 12 are basically a massive testimony to the fact that Asaph doesn't feel God's goodness. He knows it. Right, we see it in verse 1. He knows that God is good, but he doesn't feel it. God is good, but as for me. There is a disconnect between what Asaph knows to be intellectually true and what he feels to be emotionally true. And my word, what a relatable story this is. Right? I often find myself, I hate this, but I often find myself in a counseling situation where I am attempting to apply the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the pains of my brothers and sisters. And while I hate to admit it, what often happens is as I'm telling them the gospel and seeking to apply it to their pain, I'm disbelieving the words that I'm even saying. At least I'm disbelieving them to be true for myself. It's often easier for me to believe the gospel is true on behalf of you guys than it is to believe that God would, would revel that kind of love on me, that the gospel has come to my home. It's often easier for me to believe the gospel on behalf of others, and I know many of you relate to this. I wish I could spend the whole sermon here on this point because it's important, but, but these are just the first two verses and we have a lot of work to do. But allow me to just say this. It is in this disconnect of what we know and what we feel that we have to become, as one of my favorite theologians has said, administers of reality. Okay, we know what is real. We know what's real. The reality of your and my situation, if we are in Christ, is that the king of the cosmos took on flesh and lived a perfect life on our behalf and died a traitor's death in our stead. Moreover, he then rose in victory and now sits at the right hand of God, interceding our case and pointing to his blood and his own merit for our assurance, uniting us to himself. That is more real than the seat you're sitting in. We know what's real. We know it. And often we don't believe it in our own emotional lives or in our feelings. And what we need to do in that moment is administer reality back into our minds and into our souls. We need to take what we know to be intellectually true and real. This real life. We are living and breathing really, really in this moment God's air. And in God's air, he is singing delight over us. That's real for us. And we need to administer that to our own soul and mind. This is why we take so seriously the discipline of preaching the gospel to yourself and hearing the gospel from your neighbor because we need it. Let's keep going. Verses 4 through 15. Here, here we see him start to outline the ways of the wicked. Okay? And what he's going to show us is that they are increasing in riches. That the wicked have delight. 
And for Asaph, this doesn't make sense. To Asaph, it seems the wicked are delighting and the righteous are perishing. And there's a problem here. And in verse 3, he tells us this. The problem, the, the, the problem this psalm is addressing. Look at verse 3. He has an admission for us. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And can we just admit from the out front, what a weird position to be in, to be envious of the wicked. But that's the thesis of this psalm. Martin Luther once said of this psalm, this is a psalm that instructs us against that great offense and stumbling block concerning which all of the prophets have complained, namely, that the wicked flourish in the world, enjoy prosperity, and increase in abundance, while the godly suffer cold and hunger. The godly suffer affliction. They're spit upon. They're despised. They're condemned. And that God seems to be against his friends and to neglect them and to regard, support, and give success to his enemies. This offense has existed and has exercised and vexed the godly from the beginning of the church. This is what Asaph is dealing with. The success of those whose backs are turned against God while the people of God suffer. Starting in verse 4, he begins to just work through and explain the wicked that he has in mind. Pay attention to each of the clauses about the wicked because I think they have something to instruct us in. I'm going to fly through them, but let's just look at them. First, verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. We will revisit this until death portion in just a moment, but, but just hold off on that. Um, they have no pains until death. It looks like as if they're going through life with a little bit of ease. Right? He says their bodies are fat and sleek. This isn't a fat joke here. What he is saying is that they, they, they consume. Or that they see what they want and they go after it and they consume and in so doing that they fill themselves and become fatter and fatter on what they can consume and get and achieve. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They seem to be going about life with ease, without heartache or turmoil. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their pride is so evident that it is as if it is a necklace adorning them and the most devouring of sins they wear like jewelry. I think verses 7 through 8 are particularly insightful. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Uh, we see here the importance and wisdom of our Words, the importance of wisdom in our speech. For the wicked are characterized by an uncareful and scoffing tongue. The mouths speak against heaven and for oppression. He keeps going. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? That they question God and his might and they scoffingly ask is there any knowledge in God? Right, so this is the way of the wicked. They have no pain in life. They get whatever they want. They face not trouble. They're filled with pride. 
They only see what they can take. Their mouths are filled with folly. They speak poorly of others. They pursue oppression. They make themselves great. They've cursed heaven and doubted God. And in all of this, they've increased in riches. And Asaph is not happy about it. This isn't the point of the text, but just as a, an interesting um, an interesting side note, I, uh, when I was writing this sermon, I went back through and I just asked, what's, what, what is the opposite of all these things? Right? If this is the way of the wicked, can we learn, can we be instructed here by just working through the opposites? And I think it actually is instructive. I won't spend much time here, but just think about this for a moment. Look back at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Well, the opposite would be what? That we will. We will have pangs during our life. And so hear me, any, any lies you've been told from the prosperity gospel die at verse 4 in Psalm 73. You will experience pain in life. You will experience trouble, according to verse 5. Verse 6, pride will not be our necklace. We will not dress ourselves with a necklace of pride, but rather the robes of humility. The, the, the people who are for God, their eyes are not continually on the search for what they can fulfill them, what they can fulfill themselves with, and what can fulfill them in their identity, but they will dwell content with the triune God as their portion. Their hearts will not overflow with folly, but with wisdom. Their tongues, and this is convicting in 21st century world, fill social media, will not constantly scoff and speak malice, but will speak good and kindness. They bring justice, not oppression, They seek justice. They proclaim that God knows all, not doubting his wisdom, and that there is nothing lacking in the most high God. Finally, they increase not in riches, but in being made low, that Christ may be made much of. This is the way of those who are following God, and according to Asaph, they are in ruin, and the wicked are exalted. When you get to verse 12 through 15, it's kind of a turning point in the text. Verses 12 through 15 act as a bit of a summary when when, when he says, all in vain I have kept in my heart clean. This is verse 13, sorry. All in vain have I kept in my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have been betrayed. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. With all of this, he's simply asking, what is the point? What's the point? All in vain have I kept a clean heart. All in vain have I washed my hands and innocent. What is the point? Why am I working so hard to follow the Lord when others seem to have it much easier when they don't follow him? And friends, this might sound like a petty, pathetic, envious rant, But let me be fully transparent in the pulpit this morning. This is my sin. This is my sin. This is the one that gets me. We all have a sin crouching at our door wanting to devour us, and this one is mine. I don't say that in a condoning way. I say that to you in a... a, Um, convictional way of confessing to you that this is the primary sin this particular pastor of yours struggles with. Let me work you through a feedback loop that happens in my own head, okay? I'm asking for grace here because I'm being transparent. Something will happen. 
uh, insecurity, a, a, a bad sermon, an overreaction, an underreaction, a fear, something, anything. Something will happen. And what comes with the reality that I'm not perfect is an avalanche of evidence that I mentally gather against myself to prove that I'm an imposter. I can spin the wheels of my own mental ability to, to make a very difficult case against myself. Man, if you were really a good pastor, you wouldn't have reacted this way or thought that thing. If you were really a godly husband, you wouldn't have reacted this way or thought this thing. If you were really etc., 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 and then guess what I do? Here is where I have the same sin as Asaph. Instead of clinging to the cross as the only hope for my sure identity, I'll daydream. Think about how wicked this is. I'll daydream about what life would look like if I didn't have the pressures of following Jesus. Or think about it. What would it look like to abandon him? Man, I, I'm not a good pastor. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good student. I'm not a good employee. Why do I even put myself in this pressure? What would it look like if I abandoned all of it? Any form of obedience he's called me to, what if I just forsook it right now? What would it look like? What would it look like to get a new job? What would it look like to leave? What would it look like to flee? Because what I'm doing is I'm seeing the pressure that I have with the obedience of Christ, and I'm saying, man, they don't have this pressure, and it sure does look nice. They don't have this. They don't have the pressure of caring for people. They don't have the pressure of being transparent with their Christian friends. They don't have the pressure of godly parenting. They don't have the pressure of any of this. And man, does that look nice. What if we just left here, abandoned Christ, Pursued apathy over obedience. Just go through life with less worry, with less responsibility, with less initiative, with less passion, with less zeal, with less all of this. What if we went the way of the wicked and pursued the riches described in 4 through 13? For we, like Asaph, can look around and see that the wicked are prospering, aren't they? And often their prosperity becomes tempting. And I know that I'm not alone here. I can be transparent with you, uh, one, because I'm called to it, two, because I know you guys. I know that I'm not alone here. I know many of you think, man, wouldn't this just be easier if I gave up on gospel training my children and just lashed out on them when they did bad? Wouldn't this be easier if I stopped pursuing my wife in a way that called me to die to myself? Wouldn't it be easier if I stopped pursuing my husband in a way that called me to magnify Christ? Wouldn't it be easier if I forsook kindness? Wouldn't it be easier if I became hard and lashed out often and took what would look good? And wouldn't it be easier if I amassed stuff and just accumulated more and more and took and took? And wouldn't it be easier if I was the oppressor instead of the one being oppressed? And wouldn't it be easier if I stopped with this tremendously difficult call to love others like my, like, like my workers and my friends and my families and my neighbor. Wouldn't life be less burdensome and heavy without Christ? Friends, I am here to tell you and to tell me 
that the answer to that question is emphatically no. No. Our text gives us two reasons why. Both are important. Two reasons why the answer to that is no. Verse 16 through 21, we we see uh, the, the two reasons are this. First, in verse 16 to 21, while the wicked in life are without turmoil now, something much worse is coming their way. And second, our portion is Christ, and he will be our joy forevermore. Verse 16 through 22, the destruction of the wicked. Look at verse 16 with me. But when I thought of how to understand this, right, he's saying, how do I make sense of the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? When I, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Amen, Asaph it is. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned it. Well, what did you discern? Truly, you, God, have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Guys, this is heavy. These are a heavy few sentences. The grass is greener for the wicked illusion disappears when Asaph contemplates their end. For God is holy and just and justice he will demand. Those who wear pride around their neck and call for oppression... Those who take for themselves and hopes to fill their swelling eyes, they will taste destruction. And this is a heavy section of our text, but it's important for us for two reasons. You have another couplet of reasons here. One, I think this is actually good news for the oppressed. We've seen oppression seem to win the day even this week. As, as those who perpetuate sex trafficking seem to be getting off easy. But those who have been taken slave, those who have been abused, those who have been abandoned, those who have been neglected, oh, they can rest at night knowing that justice will indeed be served. It will be. God will have his day, and oppression will not have the final word. Justice is in the hands of our God, and he is just. The second reason this is important is these heavy verses should put a fire in our bones for evangelism, should it not? For it isn't just the oppressor who will face the judgments of God, it is anyone who has their backs turned towards him. May we read verses 16 through 22 and the heaviness therein with hope in our hearts for the justice and tears in our eyes for the perishing. May it move us to both fight for justice till our dying breath and proclaim the gospel until he returns. Finally, verses 23 through 28, the devotion of Asaph. We have finally arrived. The best part of the chapter. Some of my favorite few verses in all of scripture. And moreover, we are arriving at Asaph's second reason. He is determined to not envy the wicked. And our second reason why we should not envy the wicked. As we saw, the first is that they will see justice. The second is that God is our portion. Nothing else. Let's read it. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. It is almost as if Asaph, looking back on everything that he is, has written, takes all of these things that he has said, having no pain, getting everything you want, being prideful and arrogant, living the earthly life of your dream. It's as if he's taken all of them and put them in a scale with God and found that they have come up pathetically lacking. And don't miss how glorious it is. He attests that God is with him, holding his right hand. He's concerned that God has forsaken them and that he's treating well the wicked, not the righteous, but he, he, he proclaims that God is with him, even holding his right hand. So whether you know it or not, Christian, just know this God is near. And then he gets to the glorious question. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And Asaph, just like us, knows that the answer is no one. No one. This is a powerful rhetorical question. Whom have I in heaven but you, O oh God? No one. We have no one but him. He is who we are counting on. He is the basket in which we're putting all of our eggs. We are placing all of our bets on him and him alone. We are trusting none other than him. He is the only one in heaven who knows our names and adores us. Our works are not in heaven preparing a place for us. Our loved ones are not in heaven gathering our inheritance. Our church attendance, our money, our legacy, our lives, none of it is who we have in heaven. We have nothing but him. We have no one but him. And then my favorite single verse in the whole passage, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh, that this may be so for us. Amaze that nothing on earth would taste as sweet as Jesus. That our swelling eyes could, could look around for the rest of our lives. And on this earth, they would find nothing as precious as our king. They will come up wanting, eternally wanting, if they don't feast themselves on the glorious presence of Jesus. I hope you know Jesus to be many things. I hope you know Jesus to be all-knowing. I hope you know Jesus to be eternal, as God-man, as healer. But I want, what I want you to really know this morning is to know him as worthy. He is worthy. He's not just a religious teacher. He is not just the healer of the sick. He is not just the one who destroys guilt and shame in the gospel. He is not just the one who will make all sad things come untrue. He is not just the just and the justifier. He is not just the incarnate Son of God who obtained righteousness on our behalf. He is not just our crucified King. He is not just our victorious, resurrected Lord. He is our portion forevermore. This must be the cry of our hearts and the posture of our lives. There is nothing on earth that we desire like him. And I think it's important for us to notice here that the desire is him, 
not what he gives us. Jesus doesn't redeem us from sin that we might have a great prize. Jesus redeems us from sin and is our great prize. The triune God is not the means to some other end out there. No, God is the reward, Christian. God is the end. He's not the, you know, the means to some other end. The Trinity is our precious, precious end. He is our portion. He is our greatest desire. Not the lack of pain, not the lack of trouble, not pride, not oppression, not power, not applause, not riches. What we are after in this life and in the next is nothing other than the triune God himself. For in him alone can our eternal craving for glory be satisfied. Asaph concludes his remarkable psalm by saying that those who are far from God will perish. And then he has a line that I love, and I want to end our time in the text on this. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Emmaus, it is good for you to be near God. It is good for you to be near God. So be near him. Be near him. Whatever it takes, he is your portion and prize. Be near him. He has made a way in the scheme of the gospel, the Father sending the Son, the Son coming and dying on our behalf, the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to, to unite us to the triune life. He has made a way, so be near him. Be near him. Make the Lord your refuge. Make the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, be the works that you proclaim for all of your days. So my one pastoral charge today is this. Treasure Jesus. Position him as the portion of your life. Sit at his feet and behold him. And just look and look and look away. Behold him until he is the portion of your eyes, until he is the reward of your life, until he is the treasure of your heart. Just keep looking at him. And when you think you've looked enough, look away the rest of your life. Behold him. Be near him. Sit at his feet and marvel at him. For when you get a taste of his glory, when you see his goodness, all the wonders and the ways of the wicked will lose their sweetness. We will not, spending, we will not spend our days wish-dreaming away the suffering that comes from following Jesus. We will embrace it as a consequence of being near our Savior, and it will be glorious. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Whom do we have in heaven but you, O God? Lord, there is none Emmaus desires beside you. God, our our, our, our flesh and our heart, they are fickle and frail and they are, they are prone to mess things up, Lord, but you are the strength of our heart and may you, God, be our portion forevermore. God, we are people who are prone to idols. We want to run to comfort. We want to run to consumption. We want to run to those things that will give us ease 
Lord, but may you be the prize of our eye. May we want nothing more than you this week. May you give us even a taste of what that's like, to desire you above everything. God, be our portion this week and forevermore. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We end every week here at Emmaus with communion, and it's only right, is it not? Like Our souls just want to commune with Jesus and with one another at the table after hearing the news of, of him being our portion and prize in the gospel. So, so we, we, we ask that believers partake, and if you're a non-believer, we ask that you not come take bread and juice, but take Jesus, because hear me, if you are a non-believer in the room, you are in a slippery place, according to our text. And we, with one voice, beg of you to be reconciled to Christ Jesus. Believe in him and cling unto him by faith. Be united to him and have him as your portion and be satisfied forevermore. That's our call to you, non-believer. But if you are a believer, we would ask that you come take, commune with Jesus, commune with one another. Come down this side, take from the bread and juice and go back up to your right side. Emmaus, we love you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.